the joys of mentoring and friendship. I don't believe in training graduate students. I believe in exposing them to possibilities under the assumption that if they need to know something in greater detail, they will learn it on their own. That is how I learned whatever it is that I know. When people talk about training, they generally mean taking an amorphous mind and shaping it into something. It is the sort of thing that goes on at universities that are not yet in possession of high-quality students. It is not the sort of thing that should go on at serious centers of discovery. Mentoring, on the other hand, is productive, necessary, and enjoyable. Mentoring now takes place years beyond graduate school. The intricacies of modern knowledge are so vast that the graduate school experience has become only a small part of the total development of a young scientist. Over the years, especially when I was at Cornell, my experience in mentoring was mostly with students at the postdoctoral level. Students generally came to me with backgrounds in psychophysics or cognitive psychology, wanting to study patients with neurologic problems. Footnote. Psychophysics studies quantitatively the relationship between physical stimuli and the sensations and perceptions that they incite. Cognitive psychology is the study of mental processes, such as attention, language, memory and learning, problem-solving, and so on. Patients with focal lesions usually caused by strokes, or what was called broken brains, provide an excellent means to study the workings of the mind. One afternoon, Leon Festinger and I were lunching at Dardanelles in the village. At the time, his interests were turning away from psychophysics and moving into archaeology and human origins. He asked me if I might be interested in taking on one of his students, Jeffrey Holtzman. To sweeten the deal, he said he would throw in his expensive computer-based eye-tracking device. The device was way too useful and expensive to end up in storage somewhere. The eye-tracker allowed the experimenter to present visual information to a subject and very precisely stabilize where it fell on the retina. This means, for example, that if a stimulus was presented in the left visual field, something we did daily with our split-brain patients, the eye tracker would track the eye if it moved and automatically reposition the stimulus being presented. As Leon casually pointed out, the system was useless without Jeff to run it. Being a sucker for high-tech gizmos, I told him to send Jeff up for an interview. One never really expects a new acquaintance to become a truly close friend. At the ripe old age of 39, I felt as though I had already met all of my lifelong friends and that everyone I was to meet from that point forward would fit into the second-rung category of acquaintances. As if to illuminate the foolishness of that point of view, in walked Jeff, and within a week we were inseparable. I relished that friendship for six years, and then Jeff died of an awful disease. His death was like suffering a brain lesion. Part of me was gone and forever unrecoverable. The year he graduated from the new school, Jeff married Ann Loeb, a dazzling young lawyer. Her first boss was Rudolph Giuliani. Anne became an authority on the First Amendment, and she read the copy for every issue of Forbes in the Daily News before it was put to bed. She also tried to read Jeff's scientific papers. It was Greek to her, but she did it anyway. Her sense of humor surpassed even his, which is saying something. It served her well in surviving the high-stakes world of New York City law and being married to Jeff. They howled together, and just when he thought he had gotten her on something, she upped the ante. Being with Jeff was like being on Saturday Night Live all day long. We would start to giggle at precisely the same moment when listening to a lecture, and we would have to avoid eye contact, looking straight ahead and concentrating fully to prevent a major disruption from occurring. 
Occasionally, I would giggle when he didn't, or vice versa. What's going on, I would think. Is Jeff even listening? Has he fallen asleep? Usually not, and wonderful arguments would follow over drinks at the Rockefeller University bar. We had them almost every night for six years. His sassy wit was nonstop, and his impudence was an art form. One night, as we left the bar, he said to me, I think about Charlotte when I go to bed. Who do you think about? Charlotte is my wife. How can you ever forget someone like that? I tried to top him, but I never quite made it. Naturally, we talked a lot of science. Jeff was highly quantitative, and the numbers had to be really good before he would make any claims as to the results. He could think of the flaw in any experiment, and he often successfully challenged longtime views of the lab. He would agonize over an upcoming lecture, or suffer over an upcoming grant renewal, and all the time he was the best the field had to offer. Mentoring him consisted of little more than putting him in a cab to go home after a good time. Our work often involved the use of a tachistoscope, a device that presents visual information to one half-brain or the other. In order for the tachistoscope to work, one has to be a good fixator, that is, be able to stare at a point on a screen with great care and intensity. Many people find this task difficult, and we worked hard to develop that ability among our patients. This was part of the reason that we traveled up to New England at least once a month for six years in a specially equipped van, loaded with this kind of equipment. The patients' families were wonderful to us. They always fed us lunch as we chatted. Investigating psychological processes in human subjects is a tricky and sensitive business. You are probing the innermost workings of someone's mind, brain. One must always strive to communicate the deep respect and gratitude one feels to the subjects and their families for participating. On one unforgettable afternoon, we had driven to a patient's home in rural New Hampshire. We were gazing out the dining room window on our lunch break when I spotted a cow lying in the grass, staring down the hill, seemingly in a trance. I idly commented to the patient's father on the cow and its contented situation. Jeff was busy making himself a second sandwich, and I assumed he'd likely lost touch with the conversation. As I was wrapping up my cow conversation, I said, Still, why is that cow so content to gaze down the hill all day long? Jeff shot back, Beats me, but he sounds like a good fixator. Why don't we go set up the old tachistoscope in front of him and see what's going on? As the last word fell from his lips, his face began to redden. He stared at his plate, wishing he were anywhere else. Usually such faux pas were my department, and Jeff made me pay dearly for each and every one. So I intended to relish this opportunity. Turning ever so slowly in his direction, I said, What's that, Jeff? Gathering himself together, he said, I said I owe you one. Both the patient and his parents howled. A few years later, they wept when they heard the awful news about Jeff's death. Our New England trips were long, and they provided ample time to explore our views on just about everything. Jeff always talked about Anne. He was so proud of her. In short order, she was arguing cases on behalf of the Wall Street Journal, the Daily News, Forbes, and any number of other impressive publications. He was apprised of all the legal details, and he took me through every one of them. I would challenge him, but he knew all the answers. If I hit on something that was privileged, he wouldn't give the answer because he said Anne would kill him. I'd ride him, but he never gave in. I'd get frustrated and say, So how does it feel to have your wife make more money than you? He would say, Great, great, I love her. I can't afford not to. Jeff very much liked for things to be logical and orderly. 
although he didn't particularly relish orderliness in others because it frustrated his unbelievable ability to see relationships. He was an experimentalist. No one was better at that game, and it drove him to hilarity. One day, the results of a particular experiment were different every time he ran it. I said something like, this is good because maybe we're getting close to what is true. He yelled back at me, true, are you crazy? I don't care about it being true. I just want it to be consistent. He was extraordinarily giving and yet, at the same time, infuriatingly his own man. He helped the entire lab on every experimental detail, and those who didn't take his advice should have. In his own work, he wanted, above all, not to make an error in logic on anything he reported. Could there be a loophole in his interpretation of the data? He would worry all night for weeks about a talk he had to give, afraid that someone would find a flaw in his reasoning. I would chide him with remarks like, So you're wrong, big deal. We are all wrong at some level. This problem is too big for our miserable human brains to solve. All we are striving for is to be more right than wrong. We don't have to be correct. His response? Bullshit. I would tell him he was a compulsive jerk, and he would say I was a vague, undefined son of a bitch. We would go have a drink and decide we were both right. When Charlotte and I married, Jeff was there. Our official ceremony was in Judge Rena Uvula's chambers in New York, followed by an all-afternoon lunch in a private dining room atop the World Trade Center. The morning ceremony had been attended only by Charlotte's sister and our good friend, Neeson Schechter, who also happened to be the judge's cousin. At one point, Neeson told us how Rena called him one night with a question. She was deciding a case, and the plaintiff and defense lawyers were both Jewish and driving her crazy with details. So she asked Neeson, who knew all words Yiddish, for the Yiddish word for something like the big picture. The judge thought if she could find the Yiddish for the big picture, she could break through to these guys. Neeson said he didn't know the word, but he would find out. He called seventeen rabbis. None of them knew. Finally, he called his old rabbi back in Detroit, who said, Neeson, there is no Yiddish for the big picture. With Jews, it is all details, details, details. It was a dazzling day, so simple and so meaningful. Jeff guided us through the whole emotional space, making sure we didn't get caught up. Rena Uviller had qualities of mind and heart that accented beautifully the fact that the most important event of our lives was transpiring in her book-laden chambers. At lunch, we all buzzed and laughed so hard at so many things that we were positively giddy. Around 2.30, the judge said she would have to excuse herself, as she had to return to court to sentence a man who two years earlier had murdered one of his children. Since then, he had been out on bail being a model citizen and holding down two jobs to support the rest of his family. What to do? I will never forget that moment. In a matter of hours, Rena had performed our marriage participated in the revelry, and was off to deal with a further matter of great complexity and import. Jeff had set the tone of jocularity, but he had also projected the fact that he was always ready for questions about the mind and the heart. Somehow ending our marriage lunch with a social conundrum was uplifting to us all. Rena would not have introduced us to that dimension if Jeff, the stranger in the room, had not instantly been able to communicate a deep sense of dignity, even through his humor. And then, with mind-numbing swiftness, Jeff's health failed. He had had a persistent cough for a few weeks, and when he started to cough up blood, he went to New York Hospital and was immediately admitted. His wife was about to have a baby, and for the preceding few months, they'd been under the stress of getting their apartment remodeled, living in drywall dust and all the rest.
we'd attributed his coughing to a million different causes. The culture showed it wasn't pneumonia, even though the lung films suggested it. Jeff knew he was in a bad way, and he called his family and his closest friend, T.L., to his bedside. Three days into his hospitalization, Jeff's father, a physician, told me that he didn't expect him to make it. I was shocked and outraged that a young man in the best hospital in the world could be dying. They ordered a CT scan, thinking it might be lung cancer. It showed nothing, and he continued to go downhill. A lung specialist was brought in, and a quick pulmonary exam showed that Jeff's lungs were inflamed. A biopsy finally brought the diagnosis of Wegener's granulomatosis, an autoimmune disorder. Footnote. Now known as granulomatosis with polyangitis, an inflammation of the small and medium-sized blood vessels that affects many organs. The prognosis was dim. Massive antibiotics and steroids were immediately thrown at it, but Jeff kept sinking. On the way to have the lung biopsy, T.L. reports that Jeff gave him a thumbs-up sign and said, So long. He tried to cheer us all up with stories and gags, which Ann and T.L. brought out to the waiting room. At five in the morning, after his biopsy, I found him in the surgical intensive care unit. He was full of tubes so he couldn't talk, but we carried out a conversation with his part in writing. All he was concerned about was Anne. He felt horribly for her. I told him he was going to make it, but he ignored me and kept on probing for Anne's state of mind. I promised him that she was fine and that I would take care of her. He told me to take my planned day trip to the University of Georgia, and a nurse came in to shoo me away. We smiled our goodbyes, and I never saw him alive again. He died the next morning, ten days after he got sick. He was buried three days later, and the following morning his wife gave birth to their beautiful daughter. We all struggled to cope with the loss through the following days, weeks, months, and years. Charlotte and I had our first child a couple of months after Jeff's death. We spent as much time as we could with Anne and her baby. I took up cooking as a way to get focused on something new. We were all numb for a long time. Emotions are difficult things to understand. It is said by some that emotions are managed by old, subcortical parts of the brain, and as such, they are inaccessible to conscious analysis. This may be true. It is also true that emoting does not obviate moods. My emotions won't leave me alone, and simply thinking about all these things privately doesn't help. So I write these stories. I have something happier, though bittersweet to report as I type this. Two weeks ago, some twenty-eight years after Jeff's death, Charlotte and I watched a radiant bride walk down the aisle, Jeff's daughter. The best part was that she was witty and irreverent and cracked jokes the whole time, even when it was the groom's turn to talk. There is no doubt she has Jeff's spirit. Jeff was smarter than most. He worked harder than most, and he was charming like few people in the world. With all of that, and with all his scientific competitiveness, he was remarkably free of ambition. We talked about it a lot, but I never understood it until his funeral gathering. Jeff's friends came to New York from everywhere. We drank until we were numb. We stared helplessly at his beautiful pregnant wife, his dazzling mother, his spunky sister, his stately father. We talked, cried, planned, drank, laughed, and finally broke down. The truth was that Jeff didn't need to be ambitious. What sustained him were his friends. He had collected in his short life the most astonishing group of friends I have ever come across. 
Whenever his phone rang, he knew it was most likely someone he felt for, felt good about. He always talked about his other friends, but most of us had never met. Only at his death did we discover each other, and the grace of that discovery was that, through his friends, it was clear Jeffrey David Holtzman would live on. Have Van will travel. But I've gotten ahead of myself. While Jeff was working in the lab, Ledoux's footprint at Cornell was expanding. He decided to return to the original questions about emotion that fascinated him, and to his work with animals. As he did with everything, he plunged into the study with gusto and brilliance. It was only a few years before he would be known as the world's expert on emotions and the brain. This meant learning a whole new suite of research tools and a new literature. No problem for him. Before he switched to another field, however, Ledoux had contributed a key paragraph to a grant application I was writing. The split-brain team wanted a proper traveling van for testing. When we moved to New York City, we had ditched the old trailer and borrowed an old school bus, going unused at a Cornell's-affiliated hospital in White Plains. We built our modifications into the rigid seats, but after driving the big yellow bus up to icy Vermont, we were done with it. It is truly amazing that we let America's children ride around in those tin cans. So in our application to the National Science Foundation, we listed in the equipment section one GMC Eleganza motorhome. They were about $32,000. I was laughing to myself as I typed it into the formal grant budget pages. Such an item would definitely need a budget justification. In walks Ledoux. Joseph, I could use a little help with stating why we need the Eleganza. Joseph said no problem and disappeared for about an hour. He came back with a full-page rationale of why it was central to the program and why Eleganza in particular fit the bill. We needed it not only for the living area, which we would modify for our testing lab, but also places to sleep and eat, saving money on travel expenses. Into the grant went the Eleganza and its justification, and off it went to the foundation. About nine months later, I got a call from the foundation program officer. I have some good news and some bad news for you on the grant, the voice said. We will not be able to fund the research assistant you requested and, for that matter, your own salary. It is tight times, as you know. But the committee did feel the Eleganza was a good idea, so they funded that in full. In fact, that is all they funded. To be candid, it sort of sounded like a Travels with Charlie story. We like it. Well, we partied that night, and the next day Joseph found an Eleganza at a dealership in New Jersey and went over to pick it up. I had to be at some meeting or other, but when he gallantly returned with a brand new vehicle, we were giddy with excitement until it dawned on us. We were now faced with the greatest issue for any New Yorker with a vehicle. Where the hell were we going to park a 26-foot van? Frantic phone calls were made. Finally, someone came up with a slim parking spot by a building on narrow 68th Street, between York and First, the building right next to Joseph's Labs. As this was all happening, the idea was born that perhaps he could live there during the week. His housing was tight. There was another problem. How does one get into the parking place from that narrow street? Science is truly a team effort. We needed a backup specialist, and by luck, I had had a summer job somewhere along the trail that taught me how to do exactly that, swiftly and adeptly, I must say. The gates to the parking slot were open, and up the one-way street I drove with cars parked on both sides. I pulled just beyond the opening, with Joseph and Jeff sitting shotgun. Charlotte, with the no-nonsense assuredness of a vibrant blonde Texan, held back traffic. Tough New Yorkers froze in their tracks. 
and I slipped the van into reverse and, in one turn, was able to back it down the slim driveway with a clearance of only four inches. Parking the Eleganza turned out to be my job for almost ten years. Oftentimes, crowds would gather just to watch, and more than once they placed bets. At one point, the National Science Foundation officer had heard so many tales about trips in the van that he called to ask if he could stay in it over a weekend he was planning in New York. The parking spot was next to an old city public health building that had been taken over by Cornell. Right up the street on First Avenue was the most sublime Italian restaurant in the city, Piccolo Mondo. It was where we always went for either lunch or dinner when we found ourselves hosting visitors to the medical center, and we were great favorites of the maitre d'. One day I arrived with Sam Vaughn, a distinguished editor from Random House, who upon stepping into the restaurant asked the maitre d', where is your men's room? The maitre d' calmly answered, Mine is in Brooklyn. Sam smiled and turned to me and said, Everybody in New York is an editor. On one occasion, I had been seated for lunch at a famous corner booth, which, we were told, was where Vladimir Horowitz ate almost every night. Dutifully impressed, I decided I should somehow return the kindness and proceeded to tell the maitre d' about the new carbonara recipe I had mastered from reading Marcella Hazan's new cookbook. As my description rolled out, I noticed the maitre d' beginning to look ill. When I finished, he said, We do not make carbonara here anymore. But for you, I am preparing a dish of it right at the table, so you can learn how to truly make it. He did, and for the past thirty-five years, Charlotte and I have been making it at least twice a month. Being in New York was like that. Rich, unusual life experiences at every turn. The morning may have been spent on the hospital wards, examining fascinating patients with mysterious syndromes. Any day on the wards one might find a patient with an attention disorder, such as the double simultaneous extinction, as described earlier, or a patient with a fascinating aphasia, or early dementia, or a more ephemeral disorder, like a transient ischemic attack, which meant you had to think fast to glean and verify the phenomenon you were studying before it disappeared. Even if you walked into the sunroom at the end of the hall, where patients sat to warm up and relax away from their hospital room, a surprise might occur. One day, I introduced myself to a gentleman who, in turn, introduced himself. He was Paul Weiss, the famous Rockefeller University professor and mentor to Roger Sperry. I told him I had been Sperry's student, to which he warmly announced that Roger had been by far his best student. One could get called away any time for another opportunity to examine and evaluate interesting patients. Our success at Cornell was hugely dependent on the residents. We became a resource for them and they for us. As doctors roamed the hospital doing their chores, patient after patient was directed toward us. A beeper would go off and there would be news from Payne Whitney, Cornell's psychiatric hospital, adjacent to New York Hospital, about a relatively young patient with Korsakoff syndrome. This syndrome manifests with memory loss, confabulation, and apathy, a result of thiamine deficiency and it is usually seen in malnutrition resulting from chronic alcoholism or weight disorders. Volpe would grab me, and over we would go to witness the confused man, who had no idea where he was, but was about to be utterly repaired by an IV injection of thiamine right in front of our eyes. Minutes later, a call back to the main wards. A woman with acute cognitive dimming was in need of assessment. From a scientific point of view, the neurologic wards are the most fascinating place on Earth. From Sleeping Rabbits to Real People One of the most gripping procedures to watch was that of 
radiologists trying to determine which hemisphere in a patient is responsible for language and speech. Before neurosurgeons would operate in the regions near the language areas, they wanted to locate the language areas. Hemispheric variation was always a possibility and, properly, they wanted to be sure. The radiologic procedure they used, done for purely medical reasons, was an opportunity for the neuropsychologists to learn a thing or two about the dynamics of interhemispheric processes. The procedure required the radiologist to thread a catheter through the femoral artery in the leg, up through the heart all the way to the neck, and the internal carotid artery, which feeds the brain. They would then inject sodium amytal, an anesthetic that put half of the patient's brain to sleep for approximately two minutes. After that, the doctors would withdraw the catheter a bit and rethread it up to the opposite carotid artery to test the other half-brain. All of this was done under direct observation of the patient and the radiologist using a fluoroscope. Watching half of a human brain go to sleep is the eeriest experience I've had. It certainly trumped my earlier rabbit work. What makes it a draining experience as well is seeing that a person's conscious state can be directly manipulated in such a dramatic way, and always at some risk. In general terms, the patient is usually asked to hold both hands high in the air. As the anesthetic takes hold in one hemisphere, the contralateral hand falls limp. In the hemisphere responsible for language and speech, those functions are severely disrupted, yielding either total silence or gibberish. This is all especially dramatic because one knows the other half-brain is awake, watching. We were trying to answer a fairly exotic question. When the right hemisphere was home alone, so to speak, with the dominant left hemisphere asleep, could we teach it anything? Further, could it then communicate its knowledge to the left hemisphere after it had been awakened from the anesthesia? If memories were established in the right hemisphere when the dominant language system was asleep, could the left hemisphere language system, after it awoke, have access to the information that had been encoded while it was snoozing? In our experiment, we discovered the answer. No. At the same time, if the patient was asked to simply point to an answer on a card I held up, the right hemisphere, presumably, seemed to do just fine at remembering the encoded information. The information was in there, but it was stored out of reach of the language system in the opposite hemisphere. New Technologies Can the Blind See? It was such vibrant, fulfilling work, yet nothing could match what we were doing across the street in our labs, where hardcore experimental science was pounding forward. Jeff had established Festinger's eye tracker, enabling unique split-brain experiments. In our prior studies, as I mentioned, we had sent information to one hemisphere or another by simply asking the patient to fixate a point on a screen, and then quickly flashing the information either to the left or right of fixation. It had to be quickly flashed, because if it was left up on the screen for more than 150 milliseconds, the patient could move his or her eyes, thereby allowing each hemisphere to see what was being projected. The eye tracker changed all of that, ensuring that the image always remained in contact with the intended hemisphere. This meant we could show visual stimuli for longer periods of time. We could even show movies to the silent right hemisphere. Would the content of the movies affect the talking left hemisphere? Soon, two spectacular new patients arrived to capitalize on our technological advancement. Case J.W. was part of the Dartmouth series. His callosum had been sectioned in two stages, and he would prove to be extraordinarily interesting in every scientific and personal way. In addition, Case V.P. 
came to us from Ohio. She was part of another surgical series, headed by Dr. Mark Rayport, and she became exceptionally interesting as well. Throughout the remaining pages of this book, these two cases will be prominent. Overall, between the wards at Cornell and our growing group of split-brain patients, every day's work was like fishing in a stocked pond. Every time the experimental hook went in, up came another insight. It's no wonder we worked all the time. In our early days at Cornell, Jeff had found the tracker to be a powerful aid to our routine use of the tachistoscope, and he applied it to patients without split brains. He'd become interested in a phenomenon called blind sight, cleverly named by the distinguished Oxford psychologist Larry Weiskrantz. Just as the name implies, it is a syndrome in which people who have lesions in their primary visual cortex can respond to visual information, even though they deny its presence. This isn't like the extinguished stimuli that Ledoux, Volpe, and I explored when we first started at Cornell. Those patients could see information if nothing competed with it in the opposite visual field. With blindsight, however, the patient simply cannot see the object, but can nonetheless point to or pick it up or react to it in some way. The many visual scientists led by Weiskrantz studying this believed the remaining capacity was due to intact secondary visual pathways kicking in and picking up the slack somehow. The patients who had been written up in the scientific literature had not had the advantage of being studied with a fancy eye tracker. Only the tracker could ensure that a stimulus was placed in the visual field where the experimenter hoped it was and remained fixed there over a period of time. In other words, without the eye tracker, there was room for error in interpreting why there was remaining visual function. Once a region of blindness had been identified as having been caused by a central brain lesion, it behooved the experimenter to make sure that all stimuli were presented within the blind region and that none fell into any intact parts of the visual field that remained. That could only be achieved with an eye tracker, which Jeff had. All he needed was a patient to study. Sure enough, it wasn't long until one showed up at Cornell. Jeff first studied a 34-year-old woman who had undergone surgery to clip an aneurysm in the right half of her brain. The aneurysm was in her right occipital lobe, so the surgery was expected to cause blindness in part of the patient's vision. Sure enough, after surgery, the patient had a dense left homonymous hemianopia. She couldn't see to the left of a point she was looking at. She was given an MRI which revealed an occipital lesion that clearly spared both secondary visual regions and the superior colliculus, the main midbrain candidate for residual vision associated with blindsight. These intact areas should have been able to support many of the blindsight phenomena commonly reported. But the patient had no blindsight. Jeff studied her for months and got nothing. He wrote up the work and published it in one of the finest scientific journals, it met with deafening silence. Blindsight was too big an idea to be shot down by one experiment, even a great, beautifully executed experiment. Jeff said, Great, Mike. I come to your lab to learn some new tricks, and you know what I discover? Blind people are blind. That kind of brilliance ought to get me a job at Harvard. In fact, the broader claims about the nature of blindsight remain a topic for debate. Jeff soon moved on to more alluring questions. Cornell had become something of a magnet in those days. On many fronts, the work was taking hold in the scientific literature. And New York, well, was New York. Who didn't want to be in New York? 
We caught the eye, for example, of the spectacularly creative Stephen Coslin and his student Martha Farah at Harvard. They met Jeff, and all were off on a scientific hunt for the brain basis underlying visual imagery, the processes that allow us to imagine and visualize objects and events in our mind's eye. Coslin, still in his thirties, was the world's authority on this fascinating question, and it was logical to want to know how mental imagery might be affected by split-brain surgery. Jeff was pressed into duty. The story was complex and involved all kinds of discrete, detailed experiments. The studies came at a time when the notion of modularity was emerging as a conceptual framework for viewing cognitive mechanisms. With a modular framework, complex mental processes, such as visual imagery, could not be thought of as monolithic, involving just one part of the brain. Instead, complex cognitive skills were now seen to be the end result of several interacting modules, which produced what seemed to be a unitary cognitive event. It is easy to say this. And though it is hard to provide evidence for that kind of thinking, Steve, Jeff, and Martha did just that. They saw that split-brain patients handled imagery differently in each hemisphere, thereby suggesting that each hemisphere had different modules available to process the identical stimulus. Believe me, this is all you want to know about it. New York is a place that draws people into its magic. One day, a letter arrived from Toronto. A young Italian scientist from Bologna. Was wondering if we had room for her in our lab. We did, and Elisabetta Ledavas, to whom no word short of vibrant does justice, moved south into our lab and our hearts. Like all the Italian scientists I have known, she has a work ethic that is dazzling and a lust for life that leaves everyone around her breathless. Fascinated by the problem of visual attention, like everyone else that I seem to have surrounded myself with, Elisabetta had a unique approach. Everybody wanted to know how visual attention was distributed across a scene. So, for instance, if vision were viewed as a TV screen, was there more attention on the right side of the screen than on the left? Was there more attention on the top part of the screen than on the bottom? As Elizabeth worked on this question with teams of scientists, she always added her own twist: How is visual attention distributed if you look at a TV by bending down and looking through your legs at the screen, and left becomes right and vice versa? I'll never forget the look of astonishment on Jeff's face when she proposed this. Months of experiments ensued. To this day, she remains one of our closest friends and has become a distinguished scientist, successfully breaking through the rather male-dominated Italian academic culture. George A. Miller and the Birth of Cognitive Neuroscience. New York offered so many things. Not the least of which was the talent at Rockefeller University, and in particular, George Miller. I had just arrived at Cornell and was seeking companionship with someone well versed in psychology. Right next door was Miller, one of the few giants in the history of psychology. So I called to ask if I might come over sometime. He said sure, and suggested we have lunch. I had no idea this would lead to our developing the field of cognitive neuroscience. Both Miller and his office intimidated me. Not only did the office contain more books and journals than entire psychology departments, but it looked as if most of them had been read. As he stood up to greet me, I was surprised to see that he was as tall as me, which is to say, way over six feet. With little ado, we went upstairs to the Rockefeller Faculty Club, home to great minds and mediocre food. We took our trays of soup and sandwiches and sat down. As we tiptoed around various subjects, 
He occasionally interjected hospitable questions, like, would you like a beer? I said, no, thanks. A while later, he asked, would you like a cigarette? I declined. A little later, he asked, would you like dessert? Again, I declined. My thought was to keep things in the realm of professional simplicity. He looked at me in obvious exasperation and wondering, no doubt, if I indulged in anything at all, finally asking me, do you fuck? I was silent for a moment and then burst out laughing. Then I had dessert. The ice had been officially broken, and I realized that George's reputation as a formidable mind had gotten the better of me. Characterizations of first-rate thinkers tend to take on a life of their own, with the result that neophytes like me begin to think these great personages would rather have a beer with an old friend than meet someone new and challenging. George put all that to rest with one hilarious crack, and within weeks we were good friends, although I learned in the years to come that his reputation for unceremoniously dismissing faulty arguments was well-deserved. I also learned that his comments, whether positive or negative, were inevitably constructive with regard to good science. Pierre S. Dupont made a wonderful observation to the French National Assembly some two hundred years ago. It is necessary, he said, to be gracious as to intentions. One should believe them good, and apparently they are. But we do not have to be gracious at all, to inconsistent logic or to absurd reasoning. Bad logicians have committed more involuntary crimes than bad men have done intentionally. That sentiment is the essence of George. He rarely talked about the personal dimensions of a given advocate, but simply observed if their reasoning was valid. When introduced to a body of information, his enormously quantitative and logical mind began a kind of digestion process, the outcome of which would be either encouraging or damning for the topic at hand. The product of this natural capacity is a rare scientist who could break from the conventional mode of thinking in a field and form a clear image of how things should be done. Again and again, George ventured into uncharted territory and produced classic papers that were harbingers of the vast activity that was to follow in this area of inquiry. Although his roots were in psychophysics, his main intellectual concern had always been the psychology of language. In his earliest work, around 1950, he examined the perception of language, borrowing a host of technical tools from engineering. These included information theory, which provided a rigor that had been previously unattainable in the psychological study of language. Footnote. Information theory is concerned with the quantity and quality of information and is a branch of applied mathematics, computer science, and electrical engineering. Formally introduced by Claude E. Shannon in 1948 with his classic paper, A Mathematical Theory of Communication, it was developed to solve the problem of how to transmit information over a noisy channel. And what was to become his signature style? He first drew a host of colleagues and students into the study of language perception. After establishing the importance of meaning and redundancy, he then followed that lead by shifting his interest and attention to language comprehension. At about this time, Noam Chomsky released Syntactic Structures and George was quick to see its implication for the psychological modeling of comprehension. He immersed himself in Chomsky's writings. He and Chomsky spent six weeks together with their families in one house during a summer course at Stanford University in 1957. George described in a brief autobiography what a daunting experience that was for him. Given the caliber of George's own mind, that statement gives a clue as to how much of a genius Chomsky truly is. George's work during the next few years 
exploring the relationship between transformational grammar and comprehension, placed the field of psycholinguistics on a sound footing. Footnote. Transformational grammar is a theory developed by Chomsky of how grammatical knowledge is represented and processed in the brain. The idea is that each sentence in a language has both a deep and a surface structure. The deep structure represents the relations between the words of a sentence and is mapped onto the surface structure via transformations. Chomsky believes there are considerable similarities between the deep structures of all languages that surface structures conceal. George, who died in 2012 at age 92, spent his life tugging back the curtain that obscures the secrets of language. And in doing so, he not only led the field of psycholinguistics, but restructured the field of psychology. Through the study of language, he learned and taught the rest of the psychological community that when describing behavior, one cannot ignore the processing that mediates stimulus and response. Meaning, structure, strategic thinking, and reasoning are too large a part of even the simplest perception to be ignored. George and a few other seminal figures, such as Festinger, Primack, and Sperry, are responsible for changing the face of psychology, transforming it from a science of behavior to a science of mentation. Nevertheless, what has fascinated me over the years is that George, a highly rational person, did not approach his new endeavors with much forethought. Like most great scientists, he became interested in some phenomenon or other and then simply jumped in to try to illuminate the problem. As a story develops, either a new insight is gained or the idea is a bust. My own years with him were filled with another enterprise, launching yet another field which has come to be known as cognitive neuroscience, the study of how the brain creates the mind. It was born of rather intense interactions based primarily at the Rockefeller University bar. For about three years, George and I met there regularly after work and talked about our fields. He always had a deep interest in biology and assumed that much of psychology eventually would be an arm of neurobiology. A major problem with the then-current state of affairs was that neurobiologists, almost without exception, assumed that they could talk about cognitive matters with the same expertise with which they could talk about, for instance, a cellular physiology. This is the equivalent of a textile expert talking as knowledgeably about high fashion as she does about the pros and cons of polyester. It was unmitigated arrogance, and it drove many serious psychologists away from the brain and sciences, but not George. We started exchanging stories mine about episodes in the clinic, and his about new experimental strategies. I would tell him about patients with high verbal IQs who lacked a grammar school child's ability to solve the simple problems. He would tell me that psychologists do not yet have anything resembling a theory of intelligence or mind. He urged the continued collection of dissociations and cognitions seen in the clinic, in the hope that a theory would emerge from these seemingly bizarre and scattered observations. One day, in the early 1980s, I took him on my rounds and showed him a variety of phenomena, ranging from perceptual disorders to language disorders. He had never seen anything like it, and commented afterward that the neurologic patient was really what many psychologists were looking for. After all, he observed, psychologists try to test the brain's limits by making college sophomores work fast, or by rapidly presenting them with stimuli to provoke errors. In the clinic, the errors pour out of damaged brain systems with little or no effort. One patient we saw was a distinguished New York executive who had fallen down a staircase. 
He was reported to be globally aphasic, which meant that he would not understand much, if anything, that was spoken to him and would speak only a little. As we arrived in his room, the computer tomography technicians were fetching him for a scan. So George and I tagged along. The technician asked Mr. C. to slide over to the gurney, to which he replied, Yes, sir. Once positioned and rolling down the hallway to the scanner, he was asked about his comfort. Are you feeling okay? Yes, sir, said Mr. C. After arriving at the scanner, the technician slid the patient off the gurney onto the table and again asked if he felt all right. Yes, sir, said Mr. C. The scan was performed and Mr. C. was returned to his room. The technician, who was familiar with my studies, turned to me and asked why we were interested in this patient, as he felt there was nothing wrong with him. I turned to the patient and said, Mr. C., are you the king of Siam? Yes, sir, he replied with great assuredness. George grinned and observed that success is always grounded in simply asking the right question. It wasn't always fun, however. Once we started our formal program, a series of famous neuroscientists and cognitive scientists came for a week at a time to observe and share ideas. Accompanying this event was the obligatory social dinner, which included other scientists and neurologists. The intent at these dinners was to continue discussing the theme topics of the week in a slightly less formal manner. Usually they were pleasant, even inspiring, but one dinner was an exception. There were about eight guests in a private room at the New York University Club. After a drink or two, we all sat down for dinner, and the soup had no sooner been served when one of the neurologists cleared his throat and said, The history of the study of the human mind has been rich in neurology, but can you tell me one thing psychologists have discovered in the last hundred years? I could not believe my ears. George solved the problem by thrusting his chair back and walking out of the room. What ensued was the longest and most awkward dinner of the decade. George and I never spoke of it, ever but it served as an emblem of how difficult it would be to structure a new field. As we continued to consider how best to launch our new field during our evening rendezvous at the Rockefeller Bar, we talked about everything from neglect to neologisms. It was on one of those evenings in a taxi leaving the bar that we coined the term cognitive neuroscience. What we meant by cognitive neuroscience would emerge slowly. We already knew that neuropsychology was not what we had in mind. Tying specific cognitive capacities to brain lesions would not be our enterprise. The intellectual limitations of that idea seemed self-evident, especially with the advent of new brain imaging techniques. These techniques were revealing that lesions previously considered limited to only the primary tissue they damaged instead had more extensive damage to the surrounding area. This meant that it was less clear what areas of the brain were performing what functions. One evening, I asked George, just what is it cognitive science wants to know? He looked at me, alerted for action, and then said, Let me think about that. The following week, the guiding ideas behind cognitive neuroscience took form in a long memo from him, which I present in edited form in Appendix 1. Somehow, our ideas came together, and we cooked up a plan. George had been advising the Sloan Foundation on the general topic of cognitive science. The foundation had always strongly supported MIT. Accordingly, it was considering funding MIT, where cognitive science was taking shape as a focus on linguistics almost exclusively. Presenting the diagram shown in Figure 28, George convinced the foundation that the narrow linguistic view was short-sighted. Figure 28, 
George Miller's long report on the state of cognitive science for the Sloan Foundation was summed up with this diagram. This simple summary of his hard work encouraged scientists to consider neuroscience as part of cognitive science. He argued that the cognitive sciences should be inclusive of related fields, one of which would become mine, cognitive neuroscience. As he put it in a 2003 journal article, the report was submitted, reviewed by another committee of experts, and accepted by the Sloan Foundation. The program that was initiated provided grants to several universities with the condition that the funds be used to promote communication between disciplines. One of the smaller grants went to Michael Gazaniga, then at the Cornell Medical School, and enabled him to initiate what has since become cognitive neuroscience. As a consequence of the Sloan program, many scholars became familiar with and tolerant of work in other disciplines. For several years, interdisciplinary seminars, colloquia, and symposia flourished. They sure did. Jeff's wife, Anne, helped me set up a non-profit, 501c3, called the Cognitive Neuroscience Institute, and we convinced several New York universities to take part. A couple of years later, we benefited from an application to the Sloan Foundation for funds. Our goal was to facilitate cognitive neuroscience any way we could think of. We did it in several ways. We still do it. Special Meetings, Special Places One of my many personal paradoxes is that although I am about as routinized as one can be, I hate the status quo, especially the intellectual status quo. Helping to develop a new synthesis between fields especially appealed to me. In order to foster interdisciplinary interactions, once cognitive neuroscience studies were up and running, I would hold an annual week-long ten-person conference. Since I was a one-man show, my strategy was to pick a topic of great interest, pick a venue people love to visit, and let each of them have a full half-day to talk about their research. It worked. The venues included Barcelona, Kushidase in Turkey, Morea, one of the Tahitian islands, Venice, Paris, and Napa. Of course, most of what happens at a meeting takes place in between the formal sessions. Each person is sizing up the field and asking questions that never get asked in the routine setting for professional gatherings. They are also, each in their own way, determining what is credible and what is not. It all comes pouring out during spontaneous lunches and dinners, walks through foreign villages, drinks at the local bars, tours of the local sites, and yes, occasionally as a result of a question at the meeting itself. One day, Festinger and his lifelong friend, Stan Schachter, the social psychologist from Columbia, Gary Lynch, the enigmatic and driven molecular neurobiologist from the University of California, Irvine, and I, were strolling through Kushidase, a town on the Turkish Riviera noted for its colorful bazaars. We happened into a leather store that sold carry-on-sized duffel bags. The bag had about 20 zippers on it, one could take a normal size bag and reduce it to a handbag by continuing to zip it down in size, zipper by zipper. Stanley thought that was about the coolest thing he had ever seen and decided to buy one. Leon seemed impressed as well and was thinking about getting one too. He was in the throes of a final decision when he suddenly said, Wait, why and when would you use it? Lynch fired back, Oh, that's easy. Let's say you start out on a long trip and the bag is full of clothes. As you go along, you start to throw out your dirty clothes and take the bag down a notch. By the end of the trip, it is only pocket size, so you bring it home. It was one of those bonding moments 
that are hard to get at the American Psychological Association meeting in Washington, D.C., with its more than 11,000 attendees. Lynch was a marvelous combination of raw intellect, endless curiosity, and just plain fun. He was a regular at our first meetings, as he had the essential ingredient. He could cut across local jargon and get to the ideas at hand. And he was witty. On the way to Kushidasa, I was changing planes at London's Heathrow Airport and getting on a Turkish airline plane to Izmir. There was Gary at the same gate, having just arrived from Los Angeles. As we settled into our seats in a row overlooking the wing, Gary turned to me and said, You know that part of the wing that says no step? All I see are footprints around it. We were truly off on a new adventure. We sponsored a series of unforgettable meetings, each organized around a forward-looking scientific topic, such as the neurobiology of memory. The meeting on that topic particularly stood out. We held it in Morea, as I'd spotted a fantastic travel deal. Round trip from Los Angeles to Morea, with hotel, $770. It was in Tahiti, and the hotel was exquisite, nestled by the sea with sumptuous-looking food. So I cooked up another dream list of participants and got on the phone. Hi, this is Mike Kazanaga. We are holding a week-long meeting in Morea. We can contribute a thousand dollars to the costs. Would you like to come? Ten invitations, ten immediate yes responses, all in about ten minutes. A few months later, Francis Crick, Jeffrey Hinton, known as the godfather of neural networks, Corey Goodman, molecular neurogeneticist, Gary Lynch, David Olton, an expert on memory, R. Duncan Luce, the mathematical psychologist, Herb Kalaki, an expert on neurodevelopment, Ira Black, a neurologist and basic scientist, Gordon Shepard, an expert on neurocircuitry, and, of course, my sidekick, Leon, were hot at it under the swaying coconut palms. When Francis Crick was present anywhere, the chances were that the mean IQ of the room jumped up. His sparkling blue eyes and his incessant interest in biological mechanisms kept everyone alert. He was new to the field of neuroscience, which only meant he questioned more intently. After every speaker spoke, Crick would return to what became his mantra for the meeting. But what you are doing is solvable in principle. The question is, what does it mean? Let me tell you, that is an annoying question. Everyone was mumbling about it back in their grass bedrooms. What do you mean it's solvable in principle? Neuroscience was still trying to get the underlying data about basic brain functions. It was collecting the facts upon which a grand theory of what it all means would be built. Francis Crick and James Watson had already solved what a bunch of molecular facts meant for mechanisms of heredity. Neuroscience simply was not there yet. Today, some thirty years later, neuroscience still has not collected the key data, because, to some extent, it is not known what the key data even is. By the end of the meeting, everyone present had a far deeper sense of the issues and appreciated the conflicting views. Years have intervened. But the idea that neuroscience needs cognitive science has prevailed. The molecular approach, in the absence of the cognitive context, which is to say, studying the brain without the mind, limits the industrious neuroscientist to pursuing answers to biological questions in a manner not unlike that of the kidney physiologist. Although such approaches represent an admirable enterprise, when put in that light they make it impossible for the neuroscientist to attack the central integrative questions of mind-brain research. Cognitive neuroscience has now become something of a household word, with its own journal, society, and conferences. 
some of the most highly attended meetings at the huge Society for Neuroscience Convention are on topics in cognitive neuroscience.